Are you ready to start? I am. Okay. Myself. Me and Air Podcast, Charles Oglesby, Todd Me and Air, uh, here with another amazing episode with an amazing guest. Thank you guys all for tuning in. Um, the purpose of this show is to show the stories of successful African-American business owners and investors. We believe that business and investing are the true keys to financial success and generational wealth. With us today, we have Stephanie LaFlora. She created a really cool company that um, kind of highlights the importance of natural hair and she does it in a digital way, but she has a really interesting story of how she got to this space. So we're going to dig into it and have a great conversation with her. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So can you tell us a little bit more about who you are and where you're from? Yeah. So I am Stephanie LaFlora. Um, I am in Denver. Been here for 10 years. Originally from Chicago. Always rep Chicago. because uh, That's where my soul is. And I, uh, when I moved here to Denver, I discovered this problem. And that was that if you're trying to get your hair styled in this country and you do not have a person to refer you to a hairstylist and you have curls, it is very difficult for you to find a stylist. And I knew that because when I came here, I was recruited to a tech job and I didn't know anybody in the city I was in. I was the first black woman or black person, I should say, because that's true. I was the first black person at the company I was recruited to. And the town that I was in had less than 1% black people. That's significant because when I looked to find somebody to style my hair, I didn't have anybody to ask that had my hair texture at the time. And so I just was Googling it. I was looking around. I was trying to find local salons and I was rejected from about five of them. Uh, when I ended up in a conversation with a salon owner that told me that they were not trained on how to style curly and coily hair. And the problem is actually much bigger than just my Afro hair texture. It's actually all of curls. Um, stylists at cosmetology schools have not been trained until about 2021 was the first year where schools were adding that type of curriculum um, at all really to uh, what they teach. And so Crown Hunt was born out of the hunt for my crown and getting my hair styled. And so we offer a continuing education subscription for stylists to learn how to style curls and coils and also business, which is another thing that's left out of cosmetology school um, in enough detail that people need. So yeah, that's how we got started. So I understand the company in the grand sense but how did you get started? Like, what did that look like? Did you start on social media? Did you create a website? What did that look for you? Yeah, that's a great question. So my background is in marketing and I'm a visual person. I'm originally a writer, but I've kind of become a designer um, just through my own interests and um, just things that, that pull me in. And so I typically start with social media. And I'm saying that because I know there's probably other people out there that do that and it can be looked frowned upon, but it's not. It's where you can find out if people are interested in what you have to offer. It's where you can test out messaging and imagery and all these different things. So I actually started out with just a crown hunt Instagram. That's how it began. And then um, really saw that people were interested in having these conversations around curly and coily hair. 
Then I got a cohort of hairstylists and hair educators and hair product creators together to create this focus group where we identified all of the different places that where there were gaps in the experience for consumers and and also stylists and figured out like, okay, wow, there's a lot of gaps here. And so one of the biggest challenges when we first got started was where do we begin? Because there's actually a lot of areas where um, the hair industry is just ripe for disruption. It really hasn't been modernized at all. When you think about the expectations you have for other industries, buying other products, getting other services, those expectations are much higher than the ones you have when it comes to getting your hair styled, particularly if you have curly or coily hair. And that's to no fault, actually, of the professionals in the industry. It's really to the institution that has really failed a lot of people in helping create a modern experience. And so the thought was, you know, we can come in here with technology and with a consumer um, opinion and perspective and create a better consumer experience by supporting these stylists. So when you went to Denver and you were looking for somebody to style your hair, I would assume that you are a hairstylist. You're in tech and in marketing. So no. you created a platform for education. So how did you pair those two together? Did you go out and find people who they did? Yeah. They might not have been in Denver. Yeah. So um, shout out to all of the self-taught. And also there are schools out there because it's not, I'm not I don't, I don't want to say that they don't exist. Somebody called me out today. And it's like, I don't want to say that they don't exist. They do exist. They're not accessible. There's a small amount. And again, pre-2021, the 2020, we all know, everybody got, they figured out what they were, where their mistakes were, and they started to make changes. And that's all great. And I'm glad those things happened. But prior to that, it didn't happen. So um, really what we did was we showed up in this space and created a way for all stylists to get access to this tech, uh, to, to this education that didn't exist. And yes, I am not a stylist. That is not my background. So what we did was we partnered with um, stylists and educators who have credibility in the industry, who have worked with tons of big brands and different things like that. And we are getting their classes. So one of the things I always say is that stylists are some of the most industrious entrepreneurs in our country. And we don't think about it as consumers. Um, and also, I don't think big business really always thinks about it. It's just kind of like something that's just there. But we're really not paying attention to all of the hard work that happens in this industry. There's about a million hairstylists in the country, and they're making on average, less than $30,000 a year, yet they style all of our hair for our big promotions, for our vacations, for all of these moments in our life that are really important to us. And we we look at them as the people who will help us show up as you know the person we wanna be. And then yet they're in this position, they have to figure out their own health benefits. They often have about $20,000 in um, student debt from cosmetology school. And these schools are not even teaching them how to style the hair in their own community. So there's a lot happening in this industry that doesn't make sense. So really why I felt fired up to do this work was because I come from the tech industry. I come from an industry where even as a black woman, and there's not many of us there, it's growing, but certainly 10 years ago, because I've been in tech for 10 years. People are talking about it a lot right now. 
But when I got into tech, there were really not that many of me. So I spent a lot of time in rooms where I was the only one. And even in that scenario, I can tell you I had more resources than hairstylists have to grow their career. And that doesn't make any sense. So what I saw was an industry that really had no support system in any real way for people to advance their career. Yet there's a huge industry. The hair industry is billions of dollars. Curly hair alone is like $40 billion. That's insane. And hairstylists are not making any of that. You know, the people in our communities are not owning the hair, the, um, the, um, beauty supply stores and like all of the parts of this industry are really not owned by the people who mostly contribute to that economy. And so I saw that as a really big gap. And then again, as a person in tech, I'm witnessing the um, revolution of Web3 and all of these new industries that are coming to be where people see there's lots of opportunity and they're willing to invest millions of dollars into this and they're willing to do all these things and create all this support and say, go, you go experiment on my millions of dollars because I believe there's something here. And then in this industry where we all know it's valuable because we all use these services and we all depend on them, we don't see it as something worth investing in. So I think for me, I just saw it as this big opportunity to support people who've always been doing the work with things that I had access to. And it just felt obvious to me that these things should be accessible to this entire industry as well. And so I partnered with um, experts within the industry to do that. That makes a lot of sense. A lot of people would think they need to become the expert in the space to then create what you've created. But you just said, hey, let me pair this last with the expertise and bring it together. And that's what entrepreneurship is. Uh, yeah, I, I um, worked for, as a consultant for a long time. And what I did was I looked at data on communities and I helped a lot of actually small businesses and nonprofits figure out how to use this data and that was being used by large companies and big corporations to be better serve their small communities and local communities. And so it was kind of a just like natural move for me because it was work I was already doing, but in different arenas. So when I saw this opportunity, I thought, oh, I can pair my knowledge with technology and data and marketing and help the industry experts see what's happening and trending in the industry and better serve their consumers. So in a lot of ways, it was a really natural progression for me, but it does sound kind of random, I think. <laughs> that's important because you mentioned when I was reading through the bio that that's one of the things that you specialize in. But mm -hmm. I don't know if a lot of people approach entrepreneurship that way. We don't do the homework in order to make an informed decision about what we're launching. What advice would you give to people and where can you even find data like that um, so that they can start incorporating that into their entrepreneurship journey? Uh, I mean, I would say you get the data. That's that's the thing. Like there, there's some industry data, like market research that you can do, of course. But depending on whatever type of company you're creating, the, first of all, you need to know who is the person you're serving. Right. Like, why is there a need? Why is there a problem we're solving? And then you can do general research on that audience. Um, what is the, what are the pain points they have? What are, you know, there's, there's some data you'll be able to find like that. But then after that, you got to go get the data yourself. Whoever you think your ideal customer is, you need to be talking to them every day. You need to be asking them what is, what is making their 
what is it making what's making it hard for them to achieve their goals and how can your solution help them achieve their goals it needs to be about them always and the thing is no matter how good you get at that you got to keep going back to it over and over and over again and that's really the main difficulty of business is really making sure that you continuously have the um, voice of your customer in mind and always go back to them always ask them questions always do that you know like even on my even on my personal Instagram, I'm putting polls up regularly asking people, what are they looking for in their hair experience and all that? And I, the other piece of advice I would give is if you have a multi-sided marketplace, that is really hard. And most people want to do that because uh, that's just the way that business is done today. And so there's this idea that, oh, I'm just going to create this two-sided marketplace. That is a monster to tackle. It's absolutely important, but the best advice I can give is figure out how you can give one side of that marketplace. So typically it's like a producer and a consumer. Um, in my case with Crown Hunt, my original problem was I was looking for a stylist. I'm the consumer. The stylist would be the other side. So it'd be consumers and stylists would be the two sides of that marketplace. And it was really hard to think about, well, how could I get stylists to join the platform if I don't have enough consumers yet? And how could I get consumers to join if I don't have enough stylists yet? And that's like a real thing that most people will, will come across. And I had to do focus groups to come up with a solution, which was education, because education can provide enough uh, value for the stylist, they show up without the other side of the consumers being on platform. Mm -hmm. And so those are all like all of it is experiments. It's all just like, what do I think the next right thing is to do? How can I test it in the most efficient, cost effective way possible, get the data I need and then make a decision from there? It's very incremental. It is not like at some point it might explode, but when it does, you don't know. You can't predict that. You can't put that on the calendar. You can't put that in your projections, right? Mm -hmm. It's just like, you're going to keep making progress. And then at some point it might be like, oh my God, that was the thing. But like, you don't know. You just got to keep doing those the work every day. And it's honestly, it's a grind. I hate to say that because I'm not the grind type, but it is, it is a grind. <laughs> so in terms of funding, when you got started, did you bootstrap this or did you crowdfund it? What did that look like for you? Yeah, so um, I started this. So this is quite the story and journey. So I'm gonna be really transparent here. So hopefully <laughs> when we look back six months, hopefully this will be a thing that I still think was great, but I'm really transparent and I like to be because I think entrepreneurship is crazy hard. And if people aren't telling you the truth, you ain't got a chance at like going after yourself. So I try to keep it all the way real. So I started off with this belief that the only way this is possible is with venture capital funding. That's how I started this. I am 35 years old. I have two children. My youngest is eight months old. And so I was going into this thinking like, that's the only way, like I'm grown. I got real bills. I got a mortgage. I got a real life. Ain't no living in my mama's basement while I hustle. That's just like not the phase of life that I'm in. And so I didn't see. And also I had worked for a while making good money in tech. So I didn't see the like scrappy do it, you know, 
up from your bootstraps as even a possibility for my life, regardless of how I felt about it. I didn't even think it was possible because of, of, of just everything that I have going on. So I'm going to start by saying that. So that's the route that I went on. But I started raising funds in May of last year. Probably the worst time in the last decade that you could have possibly been trying to raise money for a startup, especially as a black woman, which people might say, how is that possible? I thought everybody want to give money to minorities. That's a whole nother conversation. But the point I'm trying to make is that that was the only way in my mind. We did secure venture capital funding. I'm very proud of that. 11 tribes in Chicago. I love you. They were our first, um, they were our first investor. And they did invest in us as a venture capital firm last year, and that was excellent. Then we went on to do a crowdfund. Uh, we did that with WeFunder, and we raised um, about $150,000 on there. And then we got a few other um, institutional funders to fund us outside of that, angel investors. And so all in all, we raised about $250,000 last year. And we used those funds to uh, build out our MVP, which launched a month ago. And so we are uh, in market with that right now. Before that, we did like an alpha that we tested and we bootstrapped our way through that. So we basically built our alpha, bootstrapped our way through that, but I was still working full time. Just trying to give people all the details so they understand how I make this happen. Then that alpha went really well. I felt like it was going to, I felt like this is it. This is going to work. Let's go for it. I quit my job. And then I immediately after that got um, my first venture capital funding, which was God, because it wasn't like I had lined it up. I mean, I was going for it, but I hadn't lined it up just perfectly like it worked out. And then um, went from there and did the crowdfund in the summer of last year. So that's basically how I got through this period of time. Now, I started out by saying I thought that was the only way. I don't think that's the only way anymore but but that that's because of the investor world dramatically changed last year like I cannot express enough how much it changed like 2020 was like or 2021 was like the height of investing in startups in the last you know 10-15 years and so that's what I went into this with in my mind as an expectation and it basically changed like literally like the week I started my fund is like the week that everything changed. So I had that experience. If you talk to anybody who was raising money last year, they will tell you similar stories. And so you have to start to think differently in a situation like that. Is it like, am I going to do this if I can't acquire funding? That's a question you have to ask yourself. It's like, how bad do you want it? Do you want it only under this circumstance, which is totally okay? No shame in that. Or do you want it? however you got to get it. And so I have transformed the way I thought about funding because of circumstance, but I've also been okay. And so that is an interesting thing. And you got to get real scrappy when you have limited funding, or if you're bootstrapping, that's, that's, that's its own animal. And it really is um, intense to do that. If you had to do it again, would you do the same thing? Yes, because I am not the keeper of time. It's a thing I always remind myself of. Um, 
we can like try to like plan out everything perfectly, but like knowing what I knew at the time, I wouldn't have changed anything. And let me give you a little more information. I quit my job and then I think a month later I found out I was pregnant with my second child. So that is crazy, right? Mm-hmm. I went through an accelerator. I raised funds. I did a crowdfund. I built my MVP while I was pregnant. And I think that that's interesting <laughs> because a lot of people, what they would do is if they got pregnant and they had a child or became, if they, they left their job and then found out they were pregnant, they would say, I got to go back to the job. Mm-hmm. Not realizing that that actual pressure pushed you to do all the things that you did mm-hmm. uh, because you were pregnant. I mean, I think that that was possible for a couple of reasons. I mean, like it was my second child, which was helpful. If it was my first, I probably wouldn't have done that because I wouldn't know what was coming. I would have been too scared. But because I knew what motherhood looked like, I knew what life with an infant was like. I'm married. I have a husband who's incredible, who supports me. Like we already have our like flow because it wasn't having two children is different than having one. But because I already had an idea of what that life was like, it allowed me to have more courage and belief that I could do it. Right, Even right. though it was extremely hard. I would never say it wasn't hard. It was crazy hard. I was really sick with my second child. I wasn't sick at all with my first. So I was going into it thinking like, oh, I'll be fine. And like, I was not. Um, so it was really, really, really hard. But I think that I had gone through years of wanting to be an entrepreneur and just like tiptoeing on the line of it and wanting it and and like really wanting it but not feeling like it was wise you know like honestly I was on that side like I was in the side of like I like was climbing the ladder in corporate and was feeling really good about that and I had a very comfortable lifestyle and like you know how it is like you got I mean, if you're black and or you a minority and you have family that's watched you do that, they're like, you better keep that job. You better, you better stay where you at, you know, that kind of thing. And so I had to really wrestle with that. So when I made the decision to make the leap, thank God actually that I didn't know I was pregnant when I did that. Cause that would have changed, that would have been really, really hard to do that. But I feel like God had my back and was like, nope, you're not even going to know yet. Mm. You're going to make this decision from a real heart place, heart place. And then you're going to find out what your next season looks like. Because had I not known, had I known that, I I, I don't think, I don't know if I would have done it because it just would have felt so irresponsible to me. But because I didn't know, it was like too late. Like I was already, I had already made the commitment and it was already happening. I could have gone and gotten a different job or whatever. But at that point, I had worked so long and hard on like, this is the right next step for me that I couldn't lie to myself and tell myself it was no longer the right next step. It was just like, wow, this is about to be real interesting. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, I was just like, wow, I don't even, okay. All right, here we go. That's how I felt. Yeah. Um, we always hear stories about like African-American uh, founders not being funded, um, but you did get funding. So I would ask you, what would be some tips that you would give to people who want to go that route? A couple things. Um, first of all, yes, we did get funded and I'm really proud of that. Um, we were one of 100 companies actually to receive VC funding. 
um, when we did that were black owned, which is crazy. Like I hate, I honestly don't even like saying that stat because I feel like that's trash, that that's even a thing. Uh, but I do think it's worth saying because it does put us in a rare camp that is worth perhaps telling how we did it. Um, accelerators, I think are one of the best opportunities that you can you can have to get funding. Most accept business accelerators is particularly accelerators are with tech companies. So if you're doing anything tech related, software, SaaS, almost, I mean, a lot of companies are tech at this point that will qualify as that. If you're doing any tech related company, I would say accelerators are a great way to go. Usually they come with a check as part of it. So they're extremely competitive. But if you get into them, then usually there's a venture capital firm that is backing that cohort and they write checks, which you do not have to receive, to be clear. So the, the, the terms are not favorable to you. You don't have to take them usually. But if they are, that comes with that. And that's a really great way to get your first check. Um, that's how we did that. We were in an accelerator called Ocean Accelerator out of Cincinnati. Their cohort is actually open right now. Um, and uh, they're excellent. So that's how we got our first check. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a great way to go about it because you get um, mentorship and you get like to work on a lot of your business stuff and like all the stuff that's in that might be intimidating or scary, like the legal, the like nitty gritty of the financials and the accounting and like all that stuff that feels like the bar is here and you know about this much. That helps you get to that point and you walk out of an accelerator feeling like you can roll with the big dogs in terms of how your business is set up and the um, the team you have around making sure that your business is solid. And then usually a check comes with that. So um, that's, I think, one of the best ways to get your first check. It's really hard to get the first check. Nobody wants to be the first one. <laughs> so accelerators are basically a uh, buffer because they're saying their relationship with the um, venture capital firms is that they vet companies and then they nurture them to support the thesis of the venture firm. And so that basically is your voucher. So I think that's the best way. And there's a ton of them. There's a whole bunch of them that serve all different types of things. Some that are just for women, some that are just for black people, some that are just for minorities, some that are just for everything, all different industries. So I think that's one of the best ways. There's small um, ones, there's large ones, obviously everybody knows like the um, Y Combinators and the all those guys. So like those are, I, I think that's one of the best ways to get your first check. Then after you get that, it's a lot easier to get your next check because they basically validate you. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think crowd funds are great, excellent ways to fund. Um, super quick tips on that. If you're trying to write, raise anything less than 50,000, I would not do a crowd fund. I don't think it's worth it. The legal fees and the time that it takes to do that is like, you're going to eat that money up. You'd be surprised. Um, but if you're trying to raise more than $50,000, if you have a network of customers or even friends and family that have affluence and money or whatever, if you don't have that, if you have a co-founder that has that, if you have, you know, a corporate community like that, like that's a great way to validate. And then also, Venture firms will see that as a benefit. So if you can't go to venture firms yet, but you got a network that you can raise, you know, 50,000 plus with, then you are in a good 
that really pr produces um, evidence that you have something. And then you can go to the venture firm and say, hey, look, I raised this money out of people who believe in what I'm doing, whatever, especially if you get customers to pay into it or whatever, or like um, people who understand your industry. That's a great look. And that really helps you a lot. But still, it's hard. So you need to have a plan of if I get all the funding for 12 to 18 months, which is what people are looking for, um, then great. If I have the funding for, uh, if I don't get that funding, what's my plan? Crowdfunding, great backup. Crowdfund probably will get you to MVP. It will not get you 12 to 18 months unless you really are already cooking and you got a lot of customers. Yeah. Then if you don't get that, then like you need to have a bootstrap plan. Yeah. And that might be a part-time job. That might be, I don't know. But like you need to have those multiple layers of plans so that you don't panic, you know? So I've been seeing in the news that a lot of these startups that are getting funding are having a hard time finding product market fit. Um, have you been able to figure that out for your brand and what does that look like for you? Product market fit is elusive. Don't make people think that's a calendar event. Product market fit is not a calendar event. It, it can be, but most of the time it's not. Um, I will tell you my product market fit story has been complex. I, we thought we had product market fit in 2021. Um, and we thought that because we put out a freemium version of our product where people could get access to a la carte classes. So now we have a subscription, but at first we had a la carte classes. People can purchase one off and you had to be a member in order to get access to those classes at a discount. We had 2,500 members signed up like that from that. And these are 2,500 stylists. This is our ICP, like all the stuff that you care about. That felt like product market fit. How could that not be product market fit? How could that not be? We were converting people at $2 a pop on social media ads. How could that not be product market fit? It wasn't. And so it's like, it feels like it is, but it wasn't. Why wasn't it? Um, well, 2021 was a very unique year, right? Like people were seeing online classes as the only way for them to get access to their education. So there was no in-person anything happening anywhere. The world was in chaos. So you have to consider the conditions under which you do this. You're trying to achieve product market fit. Is it unique? Is it like a one-time, like, is it a totally, you know, unique, like, vortex of circumstances? Like, there's so many things. Because product market fit can be in a season but not be sustained. Mm -hmm. So you have to continuously check that. And, and so that was where we were at 21. And, you know, then we were like, oh, well, subscriptions is the thing. And so we're going to go do subscriptions because people want to have, they don't want to buy each thing a la carte. They want to have a monthly fee like everything else. And we're in the middle of doing that now. And we're having some success with that, but we're also figuring it out. And we're also having to test and talk to customers. And so my advice would be never think of product market fit as permanent. That will fail you. Product market fit is an ongoing goal. It's like fitness. You have to be in the gym regularly. You don't get fit because you went to the gym one day and worked out really hard. You don't get fit from a boot camp and then you don't care after that. You eat whatever you want, do whatever you want. It is a practice. Yeah. So I think product market fit is something that you're always, you need to be aware of where are you? Are you in a hot red zone? Are you cold and you won't even know where to go? Are you warm? You close to it, but you, you don't know exactly what it is yet. Cause it's always going to be changing based on 
uh, consumer demands and needs and the environment. And so it just has to be something that you know, where are you on that scale and what are you doing to get to the next step? And so it's it's, it's an ongoing practice. And the way investors talk about it is like, it's this one-time box check thing. They will send you off with that. Don't you hear that? <laughs> I'm for real, because that will really get you in the funding thing. When you're trying to raise funds, people talk about product market fit, like, oh, and the box was checked on this date and time when I hit this metric. No, it did not. They will ask you again in a quarter where are your metrics at. And you could have made them feel great when they wrote the check and they're going to be very disappointed with you when you have your quarterly review. So do not ever think that product market fit is a, che- a box checked. It is not. Yeah. It is ongoing. It's, it's fitness. You got to be working on it all the time. I think that's, that's great, yeah. though. That makes <laughs> a lot of sense because I think that even people who were just launching something without going the funding route, they have that idea and they launch it and then they just expect that idea to take off instead of critiquing it and refining it and changing it up. So and even if it does take off. It might not for whatever reason that like some could change in the industry or a competitor could show up or like think conditions change so and like what, it's not there, you know? So what, what are you doing in terms of like continuing to refine that process for yourself? Yeah, um, we're always talking to customers. Um, if any stylists are listening on here right now, email me at stephanie at crownhunt.io. I want to talk to you. I want to help you with your career. I want to help you figure out what's working for you. Like always having your door open is a big one. You cannot be too busy to meet with people. You cannot be too busy to talk to your customers. You need and and also feedback is hard, actually. People think feedback is easy. Feedback is not easy. It's very difficult to get feedback. Even if people pay you, it's hard to get feedback. Like think about how many emails you get about surveys and whatever, and you don't even open them, right? Like that's the circumstance you'll be in as a as an entrepreneur trying to get feedback. So, you know, trying to be in relationship with your customer requires work. So one, I would say is you got to build a community because your community will tell you when you have a relationship with them. But you don't get a relationship with your community by sending some emails. You get a relationship with your community by participating in conversations that feel relevant to them. By showing up in places where they already are at, what are the conferences, what are the um, brands that you can collaborate with that they love? And that stuff is hard work, okay? You're going to be working real hard to make sure that you're in all those spaces. So those are things we're doing now. We're collaborating with brands. There's a bunch of collabs coming up that people don't even know about. It'll be fun and exciting. Um we are having events. We just had an event called State of Curls um, a couple weeks ago that was with influencers and hair uh, professionals um, and consumers that have curly hair talking about like what's happening with curls right now because it's all over the place in terms of people having commentary on like their experience and it's good, it's bad, it's whatever. Um, and so events is a big part of it. And then know what's going on and participating a lot. There's like this tendency, I think that some people have to not jump into conversations that may seem hot, like, oh, I want to stay out of that. Some stuff you should stay out of, but a lot of stuff, if you're not commenting on it at all, and everybody's talking about it and it pertains to your industry, it just seems like you're not there. It's not that people won't like you. They'll forget you. That's what will happen. Um, so you have to be part of those conversations as well. So those are all the ways that we are um, fighting for product market fit right now. Running a lot of ads, that's another thing. Testing out a lot of different messaging, 
creating a lot of different landing pages in order to do that. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm gonna do a quick plug. I actually spun off a company called Takeoff AI. And it's a marketing company that is empowering small businesses by helping them understand how to leverage AI and marketing strategy in order to uh, do marketing that people can't forget. Um, and I spun that off because of everything we were doing with Crown Hunt. People kept reaching out to me and saying, hey, what agency are you using? I'd like to reach out to them. And I'm like, we the agency. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was realizing that some of the stuff we were doing, I was like, oh, people need this. So uh, we figured out some ways to actually show up for small businesses and startups for a very like affordable, literally it's $250 a month. And people are able to um, get those marketing strategies and templates and using AI, which is your friend for content um, in order to get things done. I like it. The um, plug within the plug. <laughs> <laughs> um, what was I going to ask you? I was going to ask you in terms of like the tech side of your business, it seems like so a lot of people are creating education, creating courses, and they're just launching it on somebody else's platform is what makes your company a quote tech company because you built the platform that you're hosting your education on? Yes, I think it's also, I mean, I think that people, when they want to qualify what is or is not a tech company, oftentimes, and I'm going to be very opinionated here, that's kind of like an elitist thing. People want to know, like, did you create your proprietary tech and blah, 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 blah. We did. We actually did. But like, I don't think, don't let that stop you. Like the point is that it's a solution that delivers for people and the solution is the point. You're not going to limit yourself to whatever tech is out there. You'll use the tech that's out there so you can get in market quickly and efficiently and learn, but then you'll evolve your tech beyond that if you need to, and you'll continue to deliver that solution in a technical way. Um, so I think that that's the most important, but we do have proprietary tech. I don't think that everybody needs to do that. That's expensive. That's not always the right way to go. Um, but that is what we're doing. But also the reason is because we really see Crown Hunt as the platform that is built to serve the curly hair industry. And we're really trying to bring all of these different components of the curly hair industry onto a common platform. Mm -hmm. So let me explain that a little better. So really, we, we're on a mission to make life with curly hair easier. And we started by educating stylists. But we also want to make it easier to find products, hair products that work for your hair. We also want to make it easier for you to find a stylist that can actually style your hair. Um, so all of those things are things that we are on a mission to do on a common platform. So you're bringing in all these players into the same space and making it easier for them to exchange what they know and what they have to offer and using the data, because that's my background. So using the data from all of those different uh, forms of commerce in order to create smarter recommendations. So that was kind of a nerdy explanation, but that's the one Great. I have. I was gonna ask you, um, you're doing all this innovation, but what are you doing to protect what you're building? We'll have great lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I mean, I think that and, and we'll learn, but I think that there's a lot of fear. I think when people get started, um, particularly if they're not from the business tech startup world, there's a lot of fear around somebody taking your idea. The thing is, people have to work really hard to take your idea. 
You know, like usually the idea you have hasn't even like blown up yet, right? Like even in my case, what we're doing, I'm proud of what we're doing. I'm proud of the product we have. I'm proud of the impact that we're making. But at the same time, it hasn't even blown up yet, right? So for somebody to steal your idea, like to the point where it actually makes an impact on you and your business, it has to actually blow up. So they have to like actually do things that maybe you haven't even done yet in order to do that. And there's a lot of work involved in that. So I think that when it comes to protecting your idea, there's certain types of players that are more, um, they have more advantage to be able to take it and run with it. So that would be like a competitor or uh, maybe a, a big player in your industry, a corporation that hasn't quite gotten into your space yet, but they got a lot of the resources. They already got your audience, all that kind of stuff. That's different. Um, so I think that there's that, but when on average, people are not going to put the time and energy into it to do that. So you don't have to worry about that, but you can have great lawyers. You can have great contracts. Those are very important things to have so that you're protecting yourself. Um, so don't skimp out on that. Even though it's expensive, it's worth it, you know? So I would recommend that. There's also a lot of startup lawyers. I want to say that. Startup lawyers are great because they have different pricing. Um, like some lawyers will only charge you when you do your first round of funding. Like they won't charge you until you raise your first round. And they do that because they're a big law firm and they make tons of money. And they're betting on that enough of the small, enough of the startups that they help like that will take off. And then they'll be able to like, keep you as a customer for a decade and they'll make so much money off of you. It won't even matter the little, the work that they actually gave you, you know, uh, for free or for really cheap. So there's a lot of companies that do stuff like that. I will rep my, my attorneys. They are great. Omer, they are attorneys out of Cincinnati. They have a great startup program. Also accelerators. I'm gonna go back to that because accelerators oftentimes are connected to venture firms and they're connected to attorneys. Uh, that's another one they partner with and they usually have a deal like that where they'll have like a um a cheaper or maybe even a free legal um services that they give you until you get funded or they'll they'll maybe have a term so they'll be like a year or whenever you get funded is kind of like the terms and then at that point you start paying that's great because you can like get a lot of your contracts and all that kind of stuff when you don't know what you're doing you can get that together and have it really tight. Um, and then when you get your funding, you can kind of pay them and and it's it's worth it. Nice. So um, we're going to head into the close, but I have a few quick questions to ask you. Um, is what is one thing in your business or this experience that happened for you that you didn't expect? Oh, so... You know, I didn't expect for so many people to be inspired by the work I was doing, to be honest. Um, Crown Hunt is really on a mission to do something that I think is powerful, but it's also subtle, right? Like hair is not like cancer, you know, it's not like there are bigger things than hair, but hair is also cultural. It's also political. It's also personal. And so um, surprisingly, it has become a really deep conversation that has tackled a lot of really deeper things like politics and culture 
um, in a way that I didn't expect. I didn't expect so many different ethnicities to grab a hold of this. Like people, when I talk to certain people, they think Crown Hunter is about Black people and Black hair because I'm Black and I got Black hair. But actually, like the people who I talk to, the people who are helping us, they come from every background that you can think of. And they are all having a similar experience. So I think I was surprised by how um, common this experience was. So a lot of companies, like kind of like companies that you've built, they end up getting sold. And then there's always this big debate on the internet, like, oh, they shouldn't have sold or don't yeah. ask what they're doing. What's your, what's, would, well, would you sell if you got a good enough offer? And also what's your take and just a whole opinion on that whole area? My whole mission is to sell. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, let me tell y'all, listen, when people put the sacrifice and effort and energy into creating a business and trying to scale it quickly and trying to get thousands and thousands of customers and making the price affordable, which Crown Hunt is, by the way, and doing all that kind of stuff, why do they do that? One, to serve, to solve the problem first and foremost. Secondly, to sell the company. That is the freaking point. Nobody is getting venture capital funding to not sell a company. That does not exist, okay? People are doing that to sell a company. What happens when you sell a company? When you sell a company, everybody who is invested in that company gets paid. Until that point happens, because I don't think people really understand how this works. Until that point happens, I am just an employee of my own company. That's it. That big payout, that big moment, that whole reason why people do this outside of the mission, the financial return happens at the sale. That's when it happens. Until that happens, I am just an employee of my own company. Okay? So that is the point. The thing that transforms my family, that generational wealth that everybody talks about, that crap happens at the sale. And guess what? We had a crowdfund for a purpose because we didn't want that to just be about me and, and our, you know, founders and our, our, you know, starting team. We wanted that to be about everybody who knew that this need was necessary. So we got a hundred, over a hundred people who invested in Crown Hunt this early in the very first round of funding that we ever did that will get a paycheck just one, at the same moment I get one. So that's why we did it that way. Um, so yes, I'm absolutely trying to sell this company. Now, how you sell it matters and how you do that. Miel, uh, which is a um, curly hair product company um, who's owned by um, Monique. I can't think of her last name right now. I should know that, but I can't think of it. Anyways, point, Afro-Latina woman, she sold Miel to PNG this year and people were having fits about it. You don't understand every ounce of sacrifice, everything you saw, that is to get to that end. And all the people that came with her, all them employees, all those people that work really hard, they all get paid too. So it's not a one person um, win. It's it's a multi-person win. And, and how you um, how you make that transaction matters. And, and if you're in a good position, you can do that well. A good perspective. Um, What's your favorite business or investing book? Uh, venture Deals is a great book to get. Um, it really breaks down how venture works. Um, I know I did say you don't need it, but you do need to know how it works. 
Um, and you probably need it. You just need to know, you just need to have a backup plan if you don't get it. <laughs> uh, Venture Deals is a great book that you can read. It's very dense, but it allows you to understand what is the incentive for the venture capital firms? What are all the terminology that you need to know and how you can get in a room and feel like you are as smart as they are? Who is somebody that you look up to and why? I, I, this is going to be really, really, really uh, generic and it's fine. I look up to Rihanna and I'm going to say her because I think that she's a person who is a surprising billionaire. Not that I'm trying to be a billionaire. Don't I don't think in terms of like I need to hit a certain dollar amount. I've never been like that. Um, so I just really honestly don't think like that. But why I'm saying her is because her whole model was authenticity. When she built um, her makeup company, she did that considering all the shades. That's what actually made her a billionaire. It wasn't the money from the music. The music money, I'm sure, contributed, but it really wasn't that. It was the makeup company. And why did the makeup company do all that it did, Fenty? Because she was the first makeup company to actually include every damn shade. What a concept. How? <laughs> How could all these makeup companies that have been around for 100 years get beat by a R&B singer who was like, I don't know, maybe we should include my skin color. That's ridiculous. They should not have been able to be beat by her, but they got smoked. Why? Because she actually included everybody. And then, you know, you think industries will pay attention to that and be like, oh God, we got to include people. No, they didn't. Cause she smoked them again with Savage when she created the, um, the lingerie for every size and Victoria's Secret, what Victoria's Secret? They trying to figure out what to do with themselves right now got smoked again so here's the thing if you're a minority in any way you already know something that should be better than it is go build it it works and you know what the thing is you think you would think how could these big players not see that as a thing they need to do because of all of the things we already understand and know that is your advantage crush it that was good <laughs> um what sets apart successful founders from those who give up fail or never get started the community that has your back that reminds you who you are and that you don't have to be successful in order for them to love you is a really big deal um because i don't need this i have two kids i love i have a husband that has got my back and we good no matter what i'll be good broke i'll be good with money i'll be good no matter what good company whatever it don't matter i'm fine and like that really helps me think clearly um and not be desperate desperation makes makes you make bad decisions people talk about being hungry being hungry is important in terms of your your why you have to have a really good reason why but if you need it in order to survive, you will make really compromising decisions. Mm. So you don't want to be in that situation. That's that's like, and you probably will reach your goal, but by any means necessary, ain't the way you want to get there. There's a lot of bad things that can happen on that journey. That's not good for your soul. So you might get the money, but you might lose your soul. Don't want that. Mm. Um, so that's one, having people who love you, whether you succeed or not, huge. And then I think the second thing is like, I just really enjoy my creativity. Like, I love the challenge of this. I always think often that like, you know, I want to get to a point where I don't need any of this money. I don't care about it. 
so I can actually just enjoy making stuff that solves problems and not worrying so much about every dime, every, you know, projection, every, you know, like there's, there's like, I'm a firm believer in that, like, there's so many problems that need to be solved in this world that are not necessarily a great math problem or math isn't the foundation of it. Um, and so I think there's some value to, if you can somehow just come from a heart place and like really try to just solve a problem that needs to be solved, the money will follow, but it might not always, but your soul will be happy. So, you know, figure it out how you have to. So before I let you go, I read in the bio that it said you're a troublemaker. <laughs> can you tell? <laughs> Can you talk you wanna, a about that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I always was a person who just like kind of did my own thing. I thought I was gonna be an artist. I'm a writer. That's like really like that was the core of my identity for a really long time. Um, and I went to film school. In case anybody's wondering, like what kind of degree you gotta have, like the one that you finish. Um, and you know like I just always I was more of an artist that's the way I saw myself um I produced music like I just like artist was really my vibe so like business was like a thing I thought boring you know for other people and even this background I think gives artists I I have been a troublemaker my whole life in that I don't really care what the rules are um, I don't think the rules always apply to me. And that has worked out for me um, because as a person who went to film school, I should not have been able to work at a tech company. Um, having a like job where I was like leveling up regularly and doing well, I should not have been able to pitch in the meetings I was in. I should not have been able to acquire VC funding. Less than 1% of Black women, period, get any fun VC funding at all. And here I am as a person who graduated from film school. So like, you know, I think that not worrying about the rules has really helped me a lot. And I honestly think that I did worry about the rules a lot when I quit my job because I thought this is a whole new world. I don't even really know what this world is like. You know, I know how to do corporate, but there's a whole bunch of details of building a business and um, funding a business that was something I hadn't had experience with. And I thought, I better, I better like do this the right way. Let me read every book. Let me do all the things. Let me like, you know, I was just do, 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 tap dancing, you know, my way through it. And I learned in that process that that really didn't make any sense. And the things that I intuitively know to do actually are the things I need to be doing. And so I had to learn that lesson a little bit the hard way, even though I already was a troublemaker, I tried to be the like apple polisher when I first started this entrepreneurship journey, because I thought, okay, now is when I get, okay, now I'm gonna take it serious, you know? And it's like, there's so many things about who you are, your vibe, your whole essence that like, and I'm gonna say this, and if you have to blur it out, whatever that people fuck with that, you know, like if they do, then like do that the people who are following you are not looking for a different person they're looking for you to do it and so what i'm learning is that like me doing things audaciously in my own way 
helps other people feel like they can do it too. And that's the thing that's the most important to me. I don't care about nothing else, really. This is a great conversation. I learned a lot. You inspired a lot of people and you inspired me as well. Um, where can people find you? Where can they follow you? Where can they support what you're going on? If you're a stylist and you want to sign up for Crown Hunt, go to crownhunt.io and you can get on our subscription uh, for continuing education. It's less than a hundred bucks for the year. Very, no brainer. Um, if you are interested in just getting some inspiration and some good vibes, you can follow me on Instagram at Stephanie LaFlora, or you can also follow Crown Hunt at Crown Hunt on Instagram. It's popping. It's hair inspiration. It's all the things. And if you're looking for marketing, because I'm just going to plug that too, uh, go to Let's Take Off that AI and you can get uh, some marketing uh, help with your small business or startup there. Awesome. We'll make sure to have all her links in the show notes. Um, again, thank you for coming on the show. It was great. Um, man, make sure you guys leave a, a five-star rating. Give us a review. Share this with your friends and family. They need to get this information. It was super powerful. And she went over a lot of concepts that have not been talked about on this show ever. We never talked about VC funding on here before. So it's a one-of-a-kind episode for the person who was the only person to get VC funding out of 100 people. So it makes sense. Charles Oakley's be top millionaire, and we are out. In this on YouTube, I know how to do it. Just go.